So grab your Bibles and turn back to the book of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter 29 is where we're going to pick back up this morning. I want to open today with uh, an old quote from a 19th century evangelist by the name of Charles Finney. He was asked about revival, and this is what he said. Revival is the renewal of the first love of Christians. It presupposes that the church is backslidden. And revival means conviction of sin and searching of hearts among God's people. Revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. Now that last sentence I want us to hang on to today. Revival is nothing less than a new beginning of obedience to God. Uh, I believe as Christians we have misunderstood what revival is all about. What I have tended to hear most of my life is that revival is when all the unsaved people in town come to know Christ. It's actually uh, a result, perhaps, of revival, but that's not what the word revival even means. I was sharing with a brother this week about revival, and I, I love that word. Re means again. Uh, vive from the French word vivre, which means life. So revive literally means to re-life. And that can only be done to those who have already had life. Before we come to know Christ, we were dead in our (laughs) trespasses and sins, the Bible tells us. And when we are saved, we are brought from darkness to light, from death to life. But somewhere along the way, for all of us, at some point in our spiritual journey, we, we find ourselves at those places where um, we've just grown cold, we've grown distant. Uh, I, I don't think that usually happens through purposeful decisions. I think it comes sort of like um, in a gradual way, like getting a, a callus on your foot. It hurts, and you're aware of it, and you're sensitive to it, but after a month or two, you don't even notice it anymore. And that can happen to us as followers of Christ. You know, we start out the working of the Spirit to his conviction, to his leading, but then after a while, um, yeah, I've heard that sermon before. I've heard that verse a hundred times. And so we build up layers over our heart. And um, before you know it, God's word is not even able to penetrate anymore. And we as individuals and we as a church and we as a nation can become uh, dead. And so revival is all about, you know, we've been talking about revival. And and I just want to make clear, I don't agree with everything Finney has ever said, but um, and he wouldn't agree with everything I say, by the way. I'm not saying I have it right. But uh, I I agree with this completely. It's one of, I think, the most accurate descriptions I've ever heard uh, of revival. Um, It presupposes that the church is backslidden. As I said last week, this begins with us. The changing of our nation doesn't come and will not come by electing a different president. Although, let's do that real quick. (laughs) 
But, but that won't change things. This is the trap we get caught in every four years. Oh, if your guy gets in, oh, America's going to be great. No, it's not. It's not. God is the only one who can change a nation. And it begins with his people. So I want to be very clear as we look at, again, this revival in Hezekiah's time. I want to be very, very clear for all of us, and starting with me, that we do not have the privilege of sloughing this off as somebody else's responsibility. God, I hope you bring revival to them. They really need it. Or maybe a little closer to home, the person sitting next to you, you're thinking, God, I hope you bring revival to her or to him because they really need it. Last week, we just got into the first nine verses of 2 Chronicles 29. And those verses basically gave us an overview of what was to come in the next few chapters. It was about the revival that started during the reign of King Hezekiah after his father Ahaz had completely destroyed the nation, closed the doors on the temple, stopped worship, and uh, wrecked the entire land. And so the next few chapters now, 29 to 31, are going to expand on those first nine verses and give us all the details of exactly what Hezekiah did to lead the nation back to God. So today, I just want to briefly highlight the six steps that were taken by Hezekiah and the people and see how those might apply to our lives today. This is a very simple message, uh, but I pray that it will uh, really stir our hearts. So number one, We saw last week the first step was that the doors of the temple were opened. Actually, they were reopened. 2 Chronicles 29 verse 3 showed us that. It says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Now, for us, we might be thinking of a building like this or a typical American church building with stained glass windows and a steeple, and we'd be thinking, well, open the doors. I mean, what's, what's the big deal about that? I mean, if that church is closed, you, you've got over 400 more in Greenville that you can go and choose from. We, what we have to remember is that back then, the temple was the one place, the only place where God had said, my presence will come down and dwell there in that temple. So by permanently shutting the doors to the temple, Hezekiah's father Ahaz was essentially, in in every understanding of the term, he was cutting everyone off from their access to God. So this wasn't like Oh, the church is closed because, you know, a pipe broke and we had a flood, but we'll get it right next weekend. Mm -mm. Or uh, I'm going to go and visit another church this week. They, They didn't have that option. The temple was the one place God said, you must come here to be in my presence, to worship me. And Ahaz closed the doors to the temple, put bolts on them, as it were, and said, no more worship. And so by doing that, he was cutting the people off from their access to God. Now, of course, we know today, or I hope we know, that the Bible says God no longer dwells in buildings made by man. 
And so let's, let me remind you again, this place is not the church. Okay, this building, we dedicated this to the Lord for his service, asking that we would use it properly and steward it well and all of that. But this building is no more sacred than a bowling alley or a grocery store. You understand? Don't put your eyes on this. This could be gone tomorrow. But the church would still be alive and well. The temple now, the place where God dwells now, is not in a building. It's in us. It's in us. And I wonder if we ever close the doors to our temple and say, God, not today. No, not going to worship you today. Uh, Anytime I think about this, I have to go to Revelation 3.20. Again, I think this verse has possibly unintentionally been used out of context. We all know this if we've been in church at all. Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, and he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him or eat with him or fellowship with him and he with me. Now, remember, that this verse is used for evangelism, and fine, that is the process that happens when a person is saved, but this was spoken to Christians in a church. Think about that for just a moment. And so it's this picture of the church doing its thing, and Jesus is on the outside, knocking, saying, hey, you, you got time for me? You going to let me in at all? I mean, they were really busy doing church. Jesus praised them in the verses prior to this and said, look, you're doing a great job with this and this and this. But he said, the problem is you've lost your first love. You've closed the doors on me. You've put me outside. Don't ever forget that just because a church is having services, it doesn't mean that Jesus is there. Just because a church is putting on all kinds of wonderful activities for the community doesn't mean Jesus is involved at all. No, I hope he is, and I I think most of the time he is. Um, Can I just tell you, Churches often go on existing long after they're dead. This is a danger we better be alert to. And just because we keep cranking out services every week doesn't mean a thing. Churches often go on living long after they're dead. This is what Ahaz did. He He shut the doors to the temple. He cut people off from worship with God. And Hezekiah said, this is our first step. We've got to get back in the presence of God before anything will happen. That was step one. Step two, the priests and the Levites were sanctified. Now, I don't have a slide for these verses, but uh, back in verse 3, we saw last week Hezekiah brought in, after he opened the doors to the temple, he brought in the priests and the Levites. So, These were the people who ministered in the temple, uh, who helped with the sacrifices for the people, uh, and carried out all that God had commanded to be done within the temple. And in verses 12 through 14, it lists all the names of these priests and Levites. 
um, that he called in. And then we see this in verse 15, 2 Chronicles 29, 15. It says, And they, that is the priests and Levites, gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves. So now the priests, sort of the leaders, had been called in by Hezekiah. They then went out and re-recruited the priests and Levites, the others, brought them in, and they sanctified themselves. That's kind of a, an unusual word for us today. We don't use that word uh, really at all. The sanctification process was, was given by God way back in Exodus and Leviticus. And God was essentially saying to these people who were going to come and minister before him in his presence, God was saying, don't you dare, don't you dare think you can come into my presence casually. God is seldom uh, preached and proclaimed in that light nowadays. Nowadays, the church foolishly thinks they have to make God everybody's buddy. God's my pal. God's my homeboy. No, he's not. These people, with all of their mistakes, they did understand God is holy. He's not like you. This is the God with eyes of fire from whose presence heaven and earth flee. You understand? This is not a God to be trifled with. And so God put all of these cleansing regulations and sanctifying regulations in in place. One example of what God said to them was back in Exodus 19.22. It said, let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves. Why? Lest the Lord break out against them. Wow. So God had instituted this hundreds of years earlier, but unfortunately the whole system in Hezekiah's day had become so corrupt that he had to say to the priests and Levites, before you take one step back inside this temple, you all need to stop and sanctify yourselves, cleanse yourselves, purify yourselves before the Lord. And I I realize fully that, thankfully, we're not under the Old Testament system anymore. We're not bound to that old Levitical system anymore. But does that uh, let us off the hook? Do we actually think that God takes his church any less seriously than he did his temple? It scares me to death, folks, to see how some pastors today um, talk so casually about God and how casually they treat their role and their view of the church. I was um, just about a week and a half ago, I was getting my hair cut. Y'all like it, by the way? Does it, look, does it look okay? I was getting my hair cut. And uh, so this is the first time I've been to this place. And the lady, about probably 60, you know, the conversation started. And I can hear the clock ticking down to, so what do you do? And she asked, and I said, well, I'm, I'm a pastor. And she went, oh, Really? She began to talk to me quite honestly, and I mean, she had the sharp instruments in her hand, so whatever, whatever she said was okay. But she started kind of rather boldly telling me what she thought about the church, and it wasn't nice. 
And you know what I had to say to her? I had to say, um, Lisa, I can't blame you. I can't blame you for feeling that way. She said, uh, yes, a lady I know in Easley, where she lives, was bragging to her circle of girlfriends about how she has been carrying on a long-time affair with a pastor in Easley. Yeah. I'm telling you, I was, so, I was just so brokenhearted and furious, I almost asked her who the pastor was. Because you see, it's things like this that the world looks at and goes, they're no different from anybody else. They're all hypocrites. And I say to them, yeah, we are all hypocrites, every one of us. So come on and join us. We could use another hypocrite or two. We are all broken people. But for heaven's sakes, do we really view the church with such a casual attitude? Imagine a man standing in the pulpit preaching to people every week while at the same time carrying on. And by the way, can I, I'm trying to retrain myself not to use the word affair that the world uses because it sounds so lovely, like something we would go to Paris to do. No, it's adultery. That's what it is. It's adultery. And once again, the, word has, the world has created a nicer word for it to, to take the bitterness off of it. This goes on more than you may realize. The leaders in the church have, the Bible tells us very clearly, we have been called to a higher standard. Which is very difficult, by the way, because we are no higher than any of you. Yet we have been called to a higher standard. Those who teach, the Bible says, will be judged more strictly. I think about that a lot. And so Hezekiah said to all the leaders in the temple, don't you think you can just casually stroll in back in here when we open the doors and start leading the people in worship? You stop and you look at yourselves in the mirror and you sanctify yourself before God. So the doors of the temple were opened. The priests and Levites were sanctified. Thirdly, the temple was cleansed. Second Chronicles 29, starting in verse 15. And they went, this is the priests and Levites, they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris, wow, that they found in the temple of the Lord. Verse 17, now they began to sanctify on the first day of the month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. So now... Interesting, what this tells us is back in verse 3, we saw it said that Hezekiah, when he took the throne in the first year, in the first month of his reign, he started bringing about this reform. But if we do the math, what this tells us is it was not only the first year and the first month of his reign, it was the first day of his reign. So he got at it. He didn't waste any time. Now just imagine this picture, this Beautiful temple that God had given the instructions to, starting a little bit with David and then to his son Solomon. And Solomon spent years building the temple. We looked at all this way back 
And um, they dedicated the temple to the Lord, this amazing, spectacular place. And now just imagine it with um, weeds and everything growing up all around the outside, and you open the doors and go in, and there's just junk and debris and pagan idols and everything that have been brought in to the temple. It's awful to see how back then the temple was was abused and tainted in so many ways. And again, I would say it's still a problem for the church today. Back then, we're told, and we see this in the vision that God gave Ezekiel in um, uh, Ezekiel chapter 8. And we read what Ezekiel, what God showed Ezekiel, what was going on inside the temple. It was horrifying that these uh, the 70 elders at that time went into the temple before the services and went in and were looking at all their pagan gods. A lot of these were pornographic things. And, and they were uh, worshiping these pagan gods in the temple before they went and ministered to the people. And they said, the Lord does not see us. Back then they had put their pagan idols inside the Lord's temple. And you might be quick to say, well, Phil, Phil, we don't put idols in the church today. Are you sure about that? Now, let's be honest and just think about this for a second. Um, What about the idol of tradition? Rules made by church people that eventually become more important to them than the truth. They do. Most church members would sooner fight you over their traditions than they would over any doctrine in the Bible. What about the idol of personalities? Boy, we see this in America today. Magazines, you know, Christian magazines publish articles like the top 10 pastors in America. That's just heartbreaking. And every other pastor looks at that and says, I guess I'll never... I guess I'll I'll never match up. I'll never be good enough to be on that list. See, it's it's a horrible thing. This cult of personalities that takes place inside the church where pastors are given celebrity status. They fly around in $50 million jets. I mean, if you want to buy me a jet, it's okay. I'm... What about the idol of experiences? People love their church experiences. The fog and the strobe lights and, you know, people leave going, dude, that guitar solo was rad. Do people still say rad or did I just expose my outdatedness? You know, I mean, people worship experiences. They can tell you the, the goosebumpy moment in the service, but did God do anything in their heart? Uh, what about the idol of denominations? Every group claims to have it right. And so they fight against the other group, they slander the other groups, all in the name of Jesus, though, you know. There are plenty of idols in the modern church. Things that displease God and need to be thrown out. I love it when people try to nail me down about this church to a denomination. 
It bothers the fire out of them. No, but I mean, what denomination are you? We're just followers of Christ. I know, but you know why it bothers them? Because they can't put a label on me. Now, I grew up Baptist. But honestly, the older I get, I'm more and more ashamed to say that. Because while I think the Baptists have held true for, for many decades to the genuine fundamentals of the Bible, more so than any other denomination, uh, that, that cannot be said of them today. Southern Baptists and Independent Baptists are sliding very quickly uh, into a place of disrepair. And so I'm not putting my stock in any denomination, folks. Please show me a denomination in the Bible, and I'll join it. This this is all man-made stuff. And so can we not just be followers of Christ together? Is that not okay? Denominations are an idol in the church. Hezekiah refused to let the temple services resume until everything that didn't belong there was taken out and the temple could be cleansed again. Number four, worship was reinstated. Worship was reinstated. And as I, I study these scriptures, I see three main things that stand out, three sort of subheadings under this, if you will. Number one, sacrifices were made again for the sins of the people. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, uh, you, you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, he had, he had said, no, I don't want to offer sacrifices on the altar that God has designated in fact, I saw a really cool pagan altar, he said, up in Damascus, and I had my priest build me a copy of that, and I'm gonna, I want to go offer sacrifices in my own way, on my own altar to God. But Hezekiah got the people back to the way God said it must be done. Like it or not, that was God's way. I love what the old preacher said, I've shared this with you before, uh, Oliver, Oliver B. Green said, uh, this is God's universe, and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> that about wraps it up. You know, are there things in Scripture that I look at and go, I mean, I don't understand why God said to do this. So What? It's not about me. You know, if God said every service the pastor has to stand on his head in the corner and wiggle his ears for half an hour, that's what we would have to do. Ahaz said, no, I'm going to do it my own way. Hezekiah came along and said, no, we're getting back to what God said we have to do. <clears throat> and that begins with bringing sacrifices to offer for the sins of the people. Secondly, they praise God with music. This was the second step in reinstating worship. They praise God with music. It tells us they brought all their instruments, um, cymbals and stringed instruments and trumpets and electric guitars, not that one, into the house of the Lord. They brought, they brought all the instruments back, and then we see this in verses 28 to 30. It says, So all the assembly worshipped. The singer sang, the trumpeter sounded, All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. 
And then thirdly, the people brought offerings to the Lord. Verse 31, then Hezekiah said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings into the house of the Lord. So the assembly, that's the people, brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Verse 35, the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offerings and the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Now, it's interesting later on here, we don't have time to get into all this, but if you read through these chapters, you'll see um, the, the people began once again bringing their gifts to God. And it says they brought so much that they had to open up extra rooms because the, the stuff the people kept bringing was piled up in heaps. But no one forced them to do this. And I don't think it should ever be forced. Whoever was of a willing heart brought. But you see what happens here is when revival breaks out in people's hearts, there will be some things that they automatically want to do. The pastor won't have to get up in the pulpit and rail and rant and make people feel guilty. How many times have you heard me talk about money from up here? Yeah, once in a while we we do, and when we get to those sections of Scripture, we talk about it. But I will never, ever try to strong arm or guilt you into giving. Not a chance. Because I know that if God is at work in this place, he will sustain this ministry. He doesn't need my help to do that. And if God is done with this ministry, it'll close down. And that's what needs to happen. I don't want to be in a place that's artificially propped up. I don't want to be one of those churches that carries on long after it died. And so we leave that up to the, uh, between you and the Lord here. And we see here, man, when these people's hearts got changed, truly transformed, they just said, wow, we, we want to worship the Lord in every way. So the doors of the temple were open. The priests and Levites were sanctified. The temple was cleansed. Worship was reinstated. And number five, the Passover was observed. That doesn't mean a whole lot to us today. But what we see happening here in this section is that Hezekiah wasn't content to just um, restore worship for those people right there around Jerusalem. Um, Chapter 30 shows us that he sent letters to people all over Judah, remember that's the southern nation, and Israel, the northern nation, even though they were enemies. Hezekiah sent messengers out with letters to all the people, calling them to return to the Lord, to stop following the ways of their fathers, and to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. See, these people under Ahaz's rule, they had, it had been so long since they had worshipped God that they had stopped celebrating the Passover as well, even though God had clearly said to them, you have to do this every year. They said, nah, we're not going to do it. So Passover was dead. 
Hezekiah now wants to reinstate this, and he wants to invite all of God's people to come. Here's a, a quick excerpt from his letter, Second Chronicles 30, verse 6. He said, Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary and serve the Lord your God. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. And what kind of reception did he receive from these letters? Well, uh, look at verse 10. So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people laughed at them and mocked them. Verse 11, nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And I would just tell you, if you choose to follow God, if you choose to obey his word and let his light shine through you and his life live through you, those are exactly the results you can expect to get in life. Some people will laugh at you and think you're crazy, but there will be some along the way who will humble themselves because of what they've seen in you, and they will come to know Christ because of you. We, we have to understand those ratios at the beginning, or we will get very discouraged. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on it. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few will find it. As a pastor, I was saying this to someone last week, as a pastor, I find it incredibly difficult to minister in Greenville, South Carolina. This is such a tough place to minister. You know why? Because everybody's already heard everything. Everybody's a Christian. You go to a place like Africa or many other parts of the world and you stand up and teach about Jesus and, and people come flocking and they're weeping to hear the gospel. Now, it's like, geez, man, I got to get to the cafeteria. When's this dude going to be quiet? And so as a pastor, I have to understand, you know, we can preach week after week after week and pour our heart into this. Most of the time, you're not going to see anything. You're just not going to see it. It's, it's very heartbreaking. <clears throat> Um, this is what happened to Hezekiah. You know, he went to all this trouble. He sent messengers out, went to all the lands around saying, come on, let's get back to the Lord. Let's get back to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover like we're, we're told to. Most of the people laughed and said, ah, what an idiot. But for all those in Hezekiah's day who did return to the Lord, what was the outcome for them? Did they get all like burdened and weighed down by obeying the commands of God again? Oh, this is such a drag. No. Look at this. Chapter 30, verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests... The Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up 
to his holy dwelling to heaven. What, a, what an astounding transformation we see already from the time of Ahaz. God's people said, if you will just return to me, I will return to you. And what a beautiful picture this was. And then we're told next in the first part of chapter 31, in fact, verse 1 of chapter 31, the first part of that verse says this, now when all this was finished, I want to pause there, when all this was finished, all this referring to everything that Hezekiah had brought about in bringing the people back to the Lord. Uh, you see, this was, a, this was a big, big deal in the land. Um, this had been a massive awakening, a massive revival, calling the people back to repentance and back to God. But when all this was finished, you know, it's a, it's a picture of um, the time of worship had come to an end. The revival service was over. The folding chairs were being put away. The tent was being taken down. You know, the hot dog cart was being loaded on the truck. Everything was being shut down. It was all over. Now what? I mean, that was great, but what now? Well, I want to answer that by giving you the sixth and final point. The doors of the temple were opened. The priests and Levites were sanctified. The temple was cleansed. Worship was reinstated. The Passover was observed. And finally, I want you to see this one more thing that happens when hearts are truly transformed by God. Number six, idols were destroyed. Look at the rest of verse 1 of chapter 31. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. What's going on here? Well, on the way home from this massive encounter with God, this great revival, on the way home from having their hearts renewed by the Lord, the people were walking home and they passed by things they had seen that had always been there. But now they're seeing those things through sanctified eyes. And suddenly they stop in the road, they look at this and go, we don't want these wicked idols in our town anymore. Well, hang on, yesterday, last week, last month, you passed by this all the time. You never said anything. What's the difference? The difference is their hearts have been revived. Their eyes have been opened. They're on their way home now and they go, we got to get rid of this. This is not of God. We don't need this in our community. And so they began ridding the land. It was this sort of holy wrecking crew. I'm not calling for violence. Please don't go out and start tearing things down. But they began ridding the land of everything that was ungodly and unholy. And the lesson here should be so clear for us. When God does a transforming work in your life, there will be things in your own life or in your family, your school, your neighborhood, your community, your city, even your nation, that suddenly convict you. And, and they stir your heart to the point where you say, 
We ought not be doing that. God is not pleased with this. It needs to go. You see, revival is not about just a one-time thing. And then when the meeting is over, revival is over. If it's true Holy Spirit revival and transformation, it'll continue in your heart long after the service is over. One of the sad things that I read about the so-called great revivals of old, you know, that's, that's the only part we tend to focus on. But the, the reality is when you read uh, the, the writings of a lot of those evangelists in their later years of life, When they got to the end, they admitted, the thing that breaks my heart is after those revivals, we went back and it was so hard to find anybody who was still living a transformed life. See, so let's not look at the 18th or 19th century and say, wow, boy, they they had it all right. No, people are people. We're in any era. We tend to get excited about something for God, but then when the service is over, it's just back to normal. As we wind this down, um, let, me just, let me add a quick warning here. We read about amazing events like this, and we may be tempted to think, you know, wow, Hezekiah must have really known some kind of slick tactics to start this great revival and to keep it going to where it impacted the whole nation, I wonder what techniques he used that we could copy in our church. Let's be very careful. I want to remind all of us of something vitally important. Revival requires not innovation of new ideas, but restoration of what God has already told us to do. That's so important. We think, oh, if we could just cook up some great thing, God will bring revival. You know what God's waiting for? He doesn't want anything new. He says, where you need to start is to go back to what I told you at the beginning. Obey my commands. Do what I've called you to do, and revival will come. To bring the nation back to God again, Hezekiah didn't need to come up with something new. In fact, it was the opposite. He needed to return to something old that had been forgotten. The people and their practices needed to get back where they originally were with God. And as soon as their hearts were realigned with God's heart and God's purpose, revival was inevitable. So I close by saying to you that the same is still true today. If we look at the church in America today, and we would honestly have to say that it's not where God wants it to be, then we must recognize that the remedy is not to come up with something new. The remedy is to return to what God has already told us to do. We have, in large part, abandoned God's word and his ways. We've abandoned a holy life. We've abandoned following him, putting him first in our heart. And that's what we need to get back to. That's all Hezekiah did. He simply called the people to sanctify their hearts and return to the Lord. It's, it's all about the heart. 
And this whole thing started with a burden in Hezekiah's heart. I want to leave you with these three verses. We see this so clearly. How did all this start? How did it start? Well, we go back to 2 Chronicles 29.10. It says, Hezekiah said, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. Hezekiah began all of this, not because he was ordered to, not because of anything else. He began this because God had put a burden in his heart. His heart was broken for the condition of the nation and for the people. And I told you weeks ago, if you want to know where God is leading you, pay attention to what he burdens your heart for and begin to move in that direction. However small or silly it may seem, God almost always leads us in the direction of our burdens. And that's what Hezekiah did. It started in his heart. How was it carried off? Secondly, 2 Chronicles 30, 12. The hand of God was on the people of Judah to give them singleness of heart, to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So now the people's hearts have changed. And if the Holy Spirit is doing the changing your heart and my heart will be perfectly aligned. We won't care about denominational differences. We won't care about operational differences. We will be aligned. We will be one in the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, what was the conclusion of all that? It goes back to the heart again, verse 20 and 21. Throughout Judah, Hezekiah did what was good and right and true before the Lord. And in every work that he began, he sought his God and did it with all his heart. And so he prospered. It's all about having an undivided heart for God. I can tell you the thing that would revive churches in America, the thing that would revive churches around the world, the thing that would revive LifePoint Church, <coughs> is if each of us simply started with our own heart and prayed. Lord, show me any area where I've closed the door to you. Lord, reveal any idols that I have set up that need to be thrown out. Lord, sanctify me so that I will be clean and ready for your service. That's where revival starts. It doesn't start by bringing in Dr. So-and-so, the greatest speaker in the world. We could get a five-year-old child up here to read a chapter from Scripture and revival could break out. It's about us yielding our hearts to God, not having a diluted heart that's mixed with other things, having a pure, undivided heart for him. I close with this one last saying. I wanted you to see this on the screens. Revival will not be brought about by our church becoming filled with people, but by the people in our church becoming filled with God. May God Burden every one of our hearts with that desire today. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we admit to you, we long to see revival. We, we just feel the aches and the groans of this time that we live in. 
We see the direction of the world and our nation. And we know, Lord, if this is not turned around, um, things are going to get really dark. But we know that's nothing for you. This This is no big task for you, Lord. You are waiting for your people to repent and to return to you. And you've promised if we do, you will heal us and you will heal our nation. Lord, I also know there's not a good enough sermon I could bring that would bring revival. Because it's not about any person. It's not about any particular message. It's the people, all of us, individually, one by one, having a broken heart and repenting and turning to you. So, Lord, that's something I can't do in anybody else's heart but mine. And so I pray that... You would continue what you've started in my heart already, Lord, this desire to be a clean instrument in your hands, in your service. You would continue to purify my heart, to sanctify me, that I would be a ready and willing uh, instrument in your hands. And I pray the same for every person here. Lord, before we even leave this place today, before the, the closing songs are finished, would you... Would you be gracious to begin that work in every heart here today? Bring us to the place, Lord, where we are truly broken and repentant for any areas we've closed the door on you, for any idols that we've put in in the temple of our lives. God, I pray you would bring us back to you. We surrender ourselves to you in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina. 29616 USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Eyes of my heart.